tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a topic that resonates throughout Indian country and far beyond. We're looking at the journey that parents, that elders, that loved ones go on when a family member is dealing with addiction. To help us on this very important journey is Susan Burroughs. She's the author of a best-selling book known as Off the Rails. Susan, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, David. Now, people hear the title of your book, Off the Rails, and a lot of folks are thinking, Off the Rails? I mean, that sounds like a strange title for a book that's dealing with a journey through addiction. Can you help us understand what went behind the title? Well, it was really a way to encapsulate the idea that uh, as a family chugs along, sometimes we face derailments that were not expecting and that we are not always equipped to respond to. So Susan, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I am an educational professional. I actually started in advertising and then I taught at two universities. And then after that, uh, I started a training organization and then moved into admissions at a University of California campus. Mm -hmm. Finally, I have found a resting place in learning and development at a University of California campus. It's exciting to have someone who is in academia. You're an educator. You're used to teaching. And in fact, I noticed that you actually have your master's degree in a communication discipline. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that might be one of the most ironic things in my relationship with my daughter in that Uh, I do have a master's degree in organizational communication, and my work is in organizational communication, Uh, but I was unable. It was just as they say when the the cobbler's children have no shoes, Mm. really unable to use those skills to, to reach my daughter during our worst times. Wow. So the book is about a personal journey, is it not? It is. I I like to think about the book as a love story between a mother and a daughter. It is uh, difficult and uh, it doesn't always look like a love story. Hmm. And I think that uh, my daughter and I fought for each other. We fought to come back together and my whole family fought with us. I think that's the crux of the story is what can we do to fight for our children? You know, I think one of the things that every parent asks when the script doesn't play out like we think it should be written 
is what could we have done differently on the front end? And I know a lot of these things, there's nothing that could be done differently. I mean, uh, you know, there's so many stories of people that seem to have every advantage and, and they make bad decisions. I mean, we're just in a world where we're surrounded by by challenges, by influences. So I'll be honest with you, you know, from the standpoint of psychology, Susan, a lot of my, my listeners who are tuning in, if they haven't gone through the journey that you've gone through, there's a good chance that subconsciously they're going to want to blame you. And uh, you, you may have heard this described before. The way that makes sense to me is if I can blame people for their problems, then that gets me off the hook. I can be assured that my kids, my grandkids, they'll never have a problem because I would never do X, Y, or Z. And the reality is that, hey, bad things happen to people who ostensibly are doing everything to the best of their knowledge. So before we dive into the story, I mean, as we're wanting to get into the narrative, as you've looked back, I mean, do you have, first of all, some lessons or some things you'd like to share on the front end of it? And I know that's kind of putting you on the spot and that's really not the focus, but anything jump out at you? Well, I think that um, some of it was my fault. And I, I think that um, that our good intentions, our desire to be the best parents and give our children the most opportunities sometimes gets in the way of success in parenting. And I certainly take responsibility for those missteps that I took. However, I think it's also important to recognize that most parents, most parents don't realize they're making mistakes while they're in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hope that everybody gives themselves and me the benefit of the doubt to say, you know, every every move that you made seemed to be the best possible alternative at the time. So with that background, tell us a story because we want to feel what you were going through to kind of learn the lessons. So how do you start out the, the book? What picture do you want to leave readers with? And by extension, Susan, what do you want us to, to begin with as we're trying to frame this whole discussion? Well, the first part of the book is a spiral, is a, a just a rapid downward spiral where we had a relatively normal family life. Uh, on day one, six months later, our daughter was uh, laying in a hospital bed, uh, having overdosed on prescription medication. So I think that that's there, probably the ugliest part of the book is watching this, watching this child unravel. And um, they were 15 at the time. And uh, we came to the point where we had to involve therapists and experts to try to help us be better parents, be a better family unit, and to find a way to keep our child home and keep her healthy and safe. At some point after, it, believe it or not, it wasn't the, the overdose, but uh, shortly after the overdose occurred, we came to the realization that we couldn't keep her safe. Hmm. We couldn't keep her from the high-risk behaviors that she was exhibiting, sneaking out and doing drugs and uh, drinking alcohol and uh, cutting and other high-risk behaviors. So 
we began to be very concerned about keeping her alive and keeping her safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when we went to uh, what we call here an educational consultant. I know that term is a little, a little messy, but uh, they helped us find a placement first in a wilderness program, which is deeply described in the book as well. And then in a residential treatment program. And all in all, we sent our daughter away for about um, a year and a half, just over a year and a half. And it was a very difficult time, but it also uh, opened the channels of communication through the benefits of, uh, first of all, getting her cleaned up and then being in a therapeutic environment where we had moderators to help us connect to each other again. So help us get a, a better feel of the family unit. So this is a journey that not just you and your daughter embark on. You've got a 15-year-old daughter. She ends up uh, in the hospital following an overdose. Who else is part of the, the drama, at least in the family circle? Well, we're a small family. So um, I am a longtime married to my husband, and um, who was very supportive and some of your listeners may know that these programs are very costly and uh, who stood behind the family unit, my husband, and, you know, just moved to uh, liquidate assets. And, and uh, uh, fortunately, we were able to pull it together enough to send her uh, for help. Uh, the person that probably suffered the most uh, in the family unit was my younger daughter, I have a daughter who's about three and a half or uh, yeah, about three and a half years younger. Mm -hmm. uh, she is autistic. Wow. She is um, just really uh, just swang internal. Mm. We just saw her just receding from the family. She became, um, she is verbal, but at the time she became nonverbal. Wow. And uh, very emotionally distraught over what was happening in the family unit. So basically, I think this is one of the things that folks often underestimate, you know, with addiction is just the, the toll that it takes on the whole family. And I mean, you're illustrating that very powerfully. And yet you realize that it's really a family journey that you're on. You mentioned sending your daughter to a wilderness program. Now, some folks may be very familiar with those, others are saying a wilderness program. I mean, what is Susan talking about? You want to help us understand that a little better? Well, it was, uh, think of camping on steroids. And uh, so you have, um, in this case, six young women in a group ranging from the ages of 13 to 17. And uh, they wandered the mountains of utah in the dead of winter huh. they would hike and then they would set up camp and uh, they were responsible for everything they would receive a weekly ration of food and they were responsible for making sure that they meted it out appropriately for themselves they were responsible for um keeping themselves warm and dry and trying to learn how to make fire uh, which seemed to be one of the one of the more difficult uh, uh, tasks. So they ate a lot of cold food, also. <laughs> and uh, they, yeah, they lived in the snow, David. And they they actually um, 
They had no ground cover. They had no tents. They uh, put these uh, doubled up Gore-Tex sleeping bags into the snow and slept under the stars. And it's a very, very rough life. Uh, they received uh, daily community meetings with the other girls, so uh, like group therapy. And uh, once a week, a therapist would drive out in a four-wheel drive to whatever location they were in to provide a deeper uh, therapeutic experience. So it was rough. So can can we assume that there was some uh, supervision or did they just turn them out on their own in the in the wilderness? They did have uh, counselors with the group, and uh, the group uh, worked very hard to, first of all, get clean. Mm. So obviously, they were in a situation where they had no peers, they had no channels to purchase drugs, and they also couldn't leave. I, I wondered about that myself, and we went to visit them. Okay during the second month and we drove out there in our pickup truck and into the snow and you just could stand up on that plateau where they were camping on that day and do a 360 degree spin and see nothing, nothing but snow. There was nowhere to go. And so they had to then bring their existence down to the basics and learn to rely on themselves and find their inner strength and communicate their way out of there. You know, what I love about the whole story is I think this really resonates with many of our indigenous listeners because really living close to the land, basically having to uh, to provide for yourself, not relying on the nearest grocery store. I mean, these are the kind of values that indigenous people had you know, developed throughout history. And it's it's interesting because this was not a, a native program per se, was it? No, it, it wasn't, but it did rely on a connection to the land. And uh, they, they have some very powerful experiences that are tied to the land. They have a solo night where a student takes their bag and, and, uh, and leaves the group for a night. Wow, wow. Spend the night alone under the stars. So if you would like to find parallels there, uh, I would say that this, this time, these 13, 13 weeks, mm-hmm. some, of, some weeks that she is the proudest of in, in her life. Wow, that's just exciting. And we're going to be learning more about this uh, this amazing story, this amazing journey, and, and many practical lessons that you can take away from it. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got a lot more coming up with Susan Burroughs. Again, the book is called Off the Rails. It's a true account, something that can encourage you and help you if you're dealing with addictions or if you know of people that are. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more coming up on today's edition of the broadcast. We'll be up right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. 
The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the broadcast today. I am Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking with Susan Burroughs. Susan is the author of the book, Off the Rails, She's talking about a very personal journey. It's a journey that we can all learn from, whether you have someone in your immediate family who's dealing with addiction, whether that's uh, awaiting you down the road, whether it's uh, someone in your community, someone that you're rubbing shoulders with. This is just a powerful book with a lot of practical lessons. Some of you might think that introduction is kind of strange, addiction waiting for you down the road. Many, many psychologists over the years have basically said addiction is a human experience and that all of us tend to gravitate to one addiction or another. Some of those addictions may seem more fashionable. Maybe it's an addiction to athletics or to work or to something that people seem to reward you for. But most of us, it seems that some would say without a vibrant walk with a higher power, with a creator, however you want to describe it, we're looking for meaning and often find ourselves in some type of addiction. Susan, you've been sharing a very personal story about your daughter. In your book, she goes by the name of Hannah. 
and we've been trying to see through her eyes. Before we talk a little bit more about the story, I think it's interesting to talk about the book because you know we have a very diverse audience, and you gave me some warnings about the book as well as a heads up. So what what's the uh, the the warnings that readers should have uh, or or viewers listeners before picking up a copy? Well, I wanted to make sure that people knew that it is a real story. It's presented in a real way. And so the kind of profanity that was used by my daughter is uh, represented honestly in the book. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be a disservice to the people that I had been working with, speaking to, hearing from, to just try to, to gentle the language uh, when they are very likely experiencing some of that same language themselves. Thank you for that element of realism in the book. And, and like you said, I mean, sometimes people find that kind of language very distressing. But the point is, it's a real story. Am I understanding correctly? Often these are really letters and real communication that you've uh, actually put in the book? Yes, I actually started writing the book with my daughter. And after a few chapters, if you will, her response was, you know, mom, I don't want to look backwards. I want to look forwards. And this is just, it's too fresh. It's too painful. And I want to concentrate on the future. Wow. That's great. I happily released her from the project. And at that point, uh, what I was left with was not only our communication over over time, but I also had hundreds of letters from her and journal entries. Wow. We started writing to each other uh, while she was away, while we, when we sent her away. And uh, I have letters that are six, eight, ten pages long about her feelings, her life at home, how she strayed, what she felt where she went when she was gone. And then as she started her process of recovery, some of the challenges that she faced and her thought processes in some of the really critical stages of recovery. So for example, finding a higher power Mm -hmm. when you are feeling so bad about yourself and your actions, it's, that's a very challenging thing to do. It is, and uh, it's. I mean, it's such a, such an exciting story to hear. Really, basically, a journey that that so many take, and so many in a position of parents or elders, grandparents, uncles, aunties, whatever they might be, folks that are trying to support someone going through that journey. What kind of lessons are there for someone who maybe gets that call? I, I'm assuming that. This was not uh, something that you had on your calendar. Visit Hannah in the hospital with drug overdosage next week, correct? Certainly correct. We had watched Hannah experience extreme highs and lows. And our thought at the time and our the psychiatrist that we ultimately saw told us that our daughter had bipolar disorder and that she was a rapid cycler and that was accountable for her moods and then gave her uh, lithium. They went straight to lithium. I know there are some more benevolent drugs that you can take to combat the um, bipolar disorder, 
And I do not want to scare anybody who needs medication. But what we weren't told when we were given the medication was how easily you can overdose, how easily other substances can magnify the effects of the lithium. So she really, uh, along with that lithium and her recreational drug use, it was just a powder keg waiting to happen. Wow. Did it exploded uh, really rather suddenly? We went from ordinary teen misbehavior to something a lot darker, a lot worse. Uh-huh. So, speak to a, a parent who may be on that early stages of the journey. Are there things that they should be watching for? Are there things that you would say, hey, if you're seeing this or that, here's some heads up? Yeah, I think looking back, I think there are signs. I think that um, understanding peer group, understanding increased isolation, understanding the changes, rapid changes in mood, changes in language, behaviors and habits are all really important to, to watch. However, they can't always be distinguished, as I said, from normal teen behaviors. Mm-hmm. And if you look at on if you look at the lists of teen behaviors, there's a lot of overlap between these uh, between drug early drug addiction and normal teen behaviors. So I think what you really what you really end up looking for is uh, for us, it was, it's difficult to say even now, but for us, it was finding bloody bandages in the trash mm-hmm. and finding drugs in the room and finding alcohol in her room and uh, knowing that we were in deep, deep trouble. And that was relatively sudden. I, um, I think probably at the beginning of the program, you asked me about mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think probably that's the mistake I regret the most is not recognizing the spiral, not taking action earlier, because I think that the kinds of action that we did take was extreme. Mm -hmm. That type of action, sending somebody away from your family unit is only a last resort. It's just not something that should be taken lightly because there are long-lasting effects of that on the family and also on uh, the team. The saying we have in medicine is hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> And, uh, you know, we can, can all say, well, we would have done things differently. But we so appreciate you sharing because I think a lot of us, uh, you know, as we deal with our own family, we tend to be optimists. And I know most everyone thinks that they have some pretty special children or grandchildren or relatives. And uh, even if they're dealing with difficulties, they can bounce back easier and they just need a little support. And you're right. I think that's one of the toughest things. So asking for help, right? Calling out for, for help, getting professional input, really important on the front end. And so whether you're listening today to this uh, broadcast, whether you're in the heart of Indian country, whether you use tribal health services whether you're in an urban environment, you're native, and you're taking advantage of a tribal health clinic in an urban area, or uh, whether or not you're even native 
you're listening to the show and you're saying, boy, could this happen to a family member of mine? I mean, the message is yes. I mean, these are, are prevalent problems, and it can start actually very innocently with a prescription pain reliever, or it can start with uh, the friends that someone's keeping. Susan, we don't have a lot of time in this segment, but I know there's some other interesting things about your book. Before we talk a little bit more about it, tell us, again, the full title of the book, the publisher, where people can get a copy. Uh, The book is called Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. That's the the whole, the title and subtitle, uh, because you don't want to pick up a railroad book by mistake. Okay. My name is Susan Burroughs, and uh, the publisher is She Writes Press, and um, it is available everywhere. It should be easily available on Amazon. If you use Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the independent press outlets, and uh, also your bookstore. Okay. Very good. What about a website? Is there a website where people can pick up the book other than one of the the big retailers? Do you have your own website uh, with maybe some excerpts or something? There is an excerpt uh, and a link on my personal website, which is uh, surprisesusanburrows.com. Very creative, right? Oh, so susanburrows.com. And it's Burrows. How do you spell that for us? B-U-R-R-O-W-E-S. Okay. we got to step away. Susan Burroughs, the author of the book, Off the Rails. We've got a lot more coming up. Practical lessons for you as you're perhaps trying to help others navigate through the challenges of addiction or if you just want this information because it is going to come in handy. I'm Dr. DeRose. More coming up right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. 
When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Susan Burroughs. Susan is the author of the book, Off the Rails. It's a, a deeply personal story about her and her family's journey as their daughter, Hannah, found herself in the throes of addiction. We're learning lessons, things that maybe can help us either navigate those same challenges or avoid them altogether. Susan, we were speaking about some of the interventions that were done to try to help your daughter you mentioned having her in this wilderness program. I guess a lot of people are probably asking the question, well, this may sound pretty good. It may sound like you're, well, even reconnecting with some of the things that First Nation peoples have valued throughout history, getting people away from all the commercialism and and everything and just living right off the land. But the bigger question is, well, how easy is it to get a teenager to consent to go into a program like that? That's a great question. In our case, we did have consent. We had the kind of blow up uh, in our family where uh, Hannah said to us, I will go anywhere. I will do anything to get away from you. Oh, wow. Okay. And as painful as that was, um, it was a permission for us. Okay. Uh, she believed that she was going to go back to the behavioral hospital. She had been sent there on suicide watch after uh, her overdose. And uh, she didn't think it was all that bad, you know, big screen TV, green jello. So I think that that's what she was expecting. But instead, we worked with, um, we worked with a, a company uh, to, to help us find an appropriate placement. And um, we had one of our challenges was making sure the company that came to to escort her knew that she was going willingly Hmm. because the same company that will go and chase teens down in their high schools or lay in wait for them and sort of bustle them into vans and take. Oh, wow. I, it's it's sort of awful, but um, one of the reasons that we look, and I know that you have a national audience, but we're in California, and I believe that after 15, we are not able to make that decision for our students for to, to have them uh, in a program, which is why so many of the programs are in places where our kids don't reach majority until 18. Oh, interesting. 
And that boss just a little bit of time to make those decisions for them. And the escort service, unfortunately, is part of that. Uh-huh. Hannah was Hannah was ready to go. They came and and um, and picked her up at four o'clock one morning, and uh, flew all the way to Utah with her, and then handed her off to another uh, set of escorts at that point. Wow. Now, in the book, do you describe these different companies? Is that part of what you're trying to do, educate people, these different options? Or do you kind of leave those anonymous and have folks try to navigate for themselves as to who they might like to use? What we do uh, in the book is make sure that people know how to select programs and consultants. So, for example, some consultants take referral fees from programs, and we want to make sure that we avoid that. Mm -hmm. They are making a placement, perhaps, I'm not saying they do, but there is the possibility that they are receiving this referral money that they might favor a program, Mm -hmm. not necessarily select the programs based on your child's needs. Uh, We also have a resource in the book to help people know what kinds of questions to ask the program as well. So in the wilderness and then after the wilderness and residential treatment, you want to be very careful to talk about discipline and therapy, what types of therapy, what their goals and outcomes are, whether the student will be in a closed campus or an open campus. Just as many questions as you can ask to educate yourself on the experience that your child is about to have. So let's talk very specifically to someone right now who may be at that very point. They're dealing with a family member, and again, it could be a grandchild, could be a niece, nephew, could be a biological child like you were dealing with in Hannah's case. They know the child needs help. They're wondering what to do. Now, granted, every situation's different. If someone feels like they have to use tribal health-related sources because... They don't have any other financial options. But let's say someone has the latitude that you had. They do have some financial resources and can kind of go out of maybe what existing systems they have access to. What kind of questions should they be asking? Well, I think the first and most important question is, where is my child in this process? Okay. Is this intervention very early? Because if it's very early, you may want to try some interventions that that don't involve sending your student away. My daughter, Hannah, told me that there were a lot of people in these programs that shouldn't have been in the programs. And there were occasional weed users, and there were people who were um, staying out past curfew, like what we would consider those normal teen behaviors. Uh And families that had the resources very available might say, I throw my hands up, I'm sending you away. Mm. The things that Hannah asked me to make sure to let people know that this is not a decision to be taken lightly. The discipline's very strict and the journey is very difficult for our teens. So if we can help them before they get to that point, you know, that's what, that's what the hope is. And there's just been some really good uh, research lately 
One of them is uh, Dr. Harvey Milkman, and I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with this uh, doctor out of the National uh, Institute of Drug Abuse, but but Dr. Milkman is saying our kids are looking for a rush. That's a brain chemistry issue. Mm-hmm. If we see that they have a tendency towards drugs, we may want to steer them into other higher adrenaline, higher dopamine activities uh, that might might do the trick for them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so they're looking at um, natural highs, natural skills, horseback riding, zip lining, lots of uh, door activities that are on the edge. Lots of things that that satisfy the urge for that rush can sometimes just tip the balance towards a healthy, healthier teen experience. It's only when we when we find that that has not been useful or their peer group has too much influence that we run into those problems. And then we have to start looking and asking questions. So did you hear ever from your daughter, like, how did you do this to me? Why did you stick me out here in the wilderness? Was that, uh, you know, something that was communicated early on? Well, oddly, and coming back to your uh, comments about uh, being with the land uh, uh-huh. and being part of the land, uh, she does not... Um, she does not regret her time in the wilderness at all. Uh-huh. Good for her. She um, she told me that it made her feel strong, mm-hmm. confident, and self-reliant, and uh, that she is incredibly proud of herself for being able to make it. And it, it really was a made-for-TV movie <laughs> on the last day when we went to pick her up. That's the day that she was able to, what they call, bust a flame. Oh, okay eating cold food for 13 weeks. And on that very last day, she was able to make fire and, and uh, graduate out of the program. It was awesome. Okay. That's great. So from the wilderness to a more, what some people would call a conventional rehab program, how was that uh, transition for Hannah? It was difficult. Um, so that program is the one that she she asked me to tell the cautionary tale mm. that wilderness was great, but that once you go to rehab, once you go to a residential treatment program, that uh, things can be very, very strict, very structured, and the therapy's tough. Mm. It just is a whole different level of group therapy and individual therapy and also a chemical dependency therapy. So their lives are um, learning about how to assess their own needs and structured therapy sessions. It's very strenuous. It's a very strenuous life. They go to school seven days a week to try to make up for some of the schooling that they missed. And they are expected to work out uh, and exercise in some way every day. So every minute of their day is, is full. And difficult. And it's a really different type of therapist, too. Unfortunately, during the time that we had Hannah in a program, uh, there was, a, I think the common term for it is attack therapy, hmm. where the therapists are very confrontational. 
but I'm happy to say that that has gone out of style and that um, the programs have moved to um, to gentler means to help a student find their path. I think one of the big questions today, Susan, you know, we're speaking about all these fairly intimate programs in the sense of, you know, being close to counselors, being close to other participants. So much has changed uh, with the advent of uh, 2020, the coronavirus. Is that making it more difficult as you interface with other parents, other family members going on this journey with their uh, their children, their grandchildren? Is this a, a different time for uh, for treatment? It is indeed. I appreciate that question. First of all, if you just think about it in practical terms, if a student goes to a program and becomes ill, as an example, there has to be a room available for isolation. So just from a practical standpoint, there are fewer rooms available. Mm. The second problem is that intake has become much more difficult. So even if you have identified that your child definitely needs to go away for their own safety or they need intervention of some kind and that this is something that you're thinking of, if your child shows up for intake and they are displaying a fever, they're going to be sent home. Wow. So uh, things have changed dramatically. We want to talk a little bit more about maybe some things that might be alternatives if someone's having trouble getting into a program. We have to step away just briefly, but before we do, just real quickly, Susan, if some have just uh, tuned in, they want to know uh, what the, the book is and how to get a hold of it. Could you quickly give us that information? Oh, sure. Uh, it's Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction, It's a dual narrative book, a love story between a mother and daughter trying to find each other through addiction. And uh, it's She Writes Press is the press, and it's available uh, everywhere easily through Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. Thank you, Susan. We'll be back with more from Susan Burroughs. The book, again, Off the Rails. You want to hear this very important final segment, practical things that you can do that can make a difference for you, for those that you love. Stay tuned. We will be back right after these messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions, they just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? 
Some of your friends, teachers, sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends? So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and, and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Susan Burroughs is uh, here for our final segment as well. She is the author of the book, Off the Rails. She has been sharing the story of her own daughter, Hannah, the journey that she went on uh, really through addiction and then treatment, how families can help navigate that process. We're trying to bring that all down to 2020. We're recording this segment in September of 2020. And uh, with many people still, first and foremost, on their minds when it comes to health is COVID-19. It's impacting the treatment community as well. Susan, before we stepped away, you were talking about some of the challenges that this novel coronavirus has brought us uh, from making treatment rooms, beds, if you will, less available because they need to uh, have that social distance, have the ability to quarantine and to isolate. What about folks that because of some of these challenges or maybe because of their own financial resources are thinking twice about a structured rehab program? Are there alternatives that might be valuable? There are. And in addition to some of the factors that you mentioned, we also know that, you know, we have very high unemployment right now and are less able to uh, afford uh, the program. So whatever we can do to support our children uh, without going to these types of programs uh, would be fantastic. Uh, One of the things that concern me is that just as uh, our incomes fall and as uh, programs become less available, we also have to deal with the cuts in uh, both the National Institute of Health, I believe that's $5.5 billion that's been cut from their coffers, and also uh, $2.2 billion from the states for behavioral health. So it becomes very important for us to try to look for and find resources that are closer to us and available in ways that we can access them. So the first thing that I would recommend is to try to ask families to be aware of peer groups. Okay. To do whatever uh, you can to help your student connect with healthy friends. Uh, We also, this sounds very simple, but um, sometimes finding and engaging teens in new hobbies or skills 
during COVID has been very useful in keeping them from relapsing or experimenting with drugs as a way to fill their time. And um, my younger daughter actually identified 100 books that she wanted to read and uh, is keeping a chart and working her way through them. So um, it doesn't have to necessarily be these rushy outdoor Uh events that uh, might be difficult to find right now. There are things you could do in isolation. I would also suggest that parents acknowledge the feelings of their teens. So if teens are at home and moping or feeling badly, to say, oh, you have it so good. All you have to do is a few hours of uh, online school and then you get to laze around for the rest of the day. That is probably not going to help. So validating their feelings, understanding their feelings and uh, knowing that their struggle is real in terms of this time of their life when they're supposed to be social, when peer group interaction is so important to them to have that taken away can sometimes be destructive. And then finally, for those of your listeners who may have children who are already chemically dependent, or they suspect they're on the way to becoming chemically dependent, a lot of services have gone online. Mm. We know that AA, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, most of these support systems have online options now. So that makes it safe. And uh, most of them are free. And they're available when um, the states have cut funding and when we may not be able to find uh, other options for our children. So we're talking when you speak about NA, Narcotics Anonymous, or AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, being online. Are we talking about virtual conferences where people can interact? Or is it more self-study materials? What is that like? Uh, Hannah goes to a weekly meeting and actually runs weekly meetings now. And um, they're online and they're very available and One of the things that she has shared with me is because the same people come to the meetings over and over again, you do surprisingly establish the same kind of intimacy. Well, maybe not exactly the same, but certainly establish intimacy online uh, is helpful as a support. You can still have sponsorships online. I just, I want to uh, plug Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, if I may. Please, please. So that is where I found my list initially to help support our transition home. And uh, Partnership for Drug-Free Kids has put together a list of online resources. Mm -hmm. And it uh, includes the the ones that we mentioned, the well-known, the 12-step online programs, but also Allies in Recovery, Families Anonymous, the Heron Project, which is an online support group for families. And they have links to all of these programs. So not only are we supporting our children, but we're finding support for ourselves, finding guidance in a real-time way with other people who have similar lived experiences. Excellent. And is there an easy way to find Partnership for Drug-Free Kids? Just put it in a search engine, or is there a website? 
I would just search it. I think the website is the same as the search term. Okay. So as long as someone can remember Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, they're going to find it. They'll find a long list of resources. And I just want to emphasize that the resources are for the families as well as the teens. And uh, that I hope that uh, families are willing to take the ride along with their teens uh, in supporting them and reading the same material and going to the same types of meetings so that they find a common language that they can use together. Great. Well, Susan, you've been very helpful. It's been an exciting uh, story that you've been willing to tell. Uh, exciting in the sense that uh, we know there's hope at the end of the tunnel because you're here, you're speaking about it, and we don't want to give away the book, but we're glad that uh, you're not mired in depression and telling people just don't have kids, okay? So <laughs> thank you for giving that message. Some folks are no doubt wanting to pick up the book off the rails. You've mentioned earlier in the show that it's pretty graphic, uh, some pretty strong language, profanities and all, because that's the language that Hannah was using as she went through that journey. So we've given out that disclaimer. As we're winding up, final messages that you'd like to give folks. Absolutely. There is hope and there is happiness on the other side. And uh, this will pass. And there is a way and a path for you to keep your family intact and better than ever on the other side. That's so tremendous. We want to make sure that you can actually tap into the things that Susan has pulled together. And Susan, you've been gracious enough to put out an excerpt of the book on your personal website. Tell us again the full title of the book, publisher, those details, and then about your website. The book is Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. And it is a dual narrative where you hear the voices of both Hannah and myself moving through the process from decline all the way through recovery. And it is published by She Writes Press. And it can be found on my website, susanburrows.com. Burrows is tricky. It's B-U-R-R-O-W-E-S. SusanBurrows.com. Okay, so again, Susan, S-U-S-A-N, of course, Burrows, B-U-R-R-O-W-E-S.com. Uh, that's probably the single best place to go to get some of this information. And uh, I just want to encourage you, as the host of the show and the one who's had the privilege of uh, being here this hour with Susan, that this is something that all of us need to know about. And it's not a native issue. It is an issue of humanity. So, Susan, we're just so grateful that you've taken time out, not only to share your story, but to write the book. And I know there's probably one last question that people have, because we've been talking about this dialogue format. Is the, the book yet available as an audio book? And if so, where would they find that? It has not been produced as an audio book. Thank you for asking. That is uh, in the works at this time. Okay. So keep your ears to the ground. If you want to hear uh, Susan's voice and maybe, uh, I don't know if it would actually be Hannah's voice, but uh, I think it would be an exciting uh, audio book, and maybe we can feature that again on the show when it comes out. Listen, thank you, each of you, for joining us on today's edition of American Indian Living. Thank you, of course, Susan, for being our guest today. 
And as always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.